1: Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy. And joining me as usual is David Leach from ITK Services. David, I trust you well in what has become an increasingly interesting month for energy policy.
2: Not just policy, uh, Giles. Depending on whether you're a consumer or a producer, uh, you'll either see uh, this minimum demand in Queensland and midday negative prices, as either good news or the end of some uh, a period where you were finally making some money, that is for producers. Uh, so there we go.
1: Absolutely, yes, and an ongoing continuing challenge for the um, ageing coal fleets in the, uh, in the remaining states. So um, interestingly enough. Now, look, of course, we've had over the past two weeks some sort of reasonably sort of landmark events. We'll get to some of the energy minister stuff Later on, um, and um, what we can expect this week with uh, in um, uh, in terms of sort of new policy initiatives. But um, about ten days ago, we saw the House of Representatives, or uh, well, nearly two weeks ago now, saw the House of Representatives, R- Representatives um, pass Labor's climate bill into law. Well, they voted for it, and it will go to the Senate where it's sort of um, more or less be rubber stamped. Um, and one of the keys was Labor's ability to, uh, well, they had the numbers, but they've got the teals supporting them and also the Greens. And um, we spoke to one of the original community independents, as she likes to describe herself rather than uh, teals, uh, Helen Haynes from the seat of Indi uh, in Victoria, once a, um, a solid uh, coalition seat, but for many years now an independent. Anyway, we spoke to Helen Haynes earlier today I'm um, Helen Haynes um, MP for Indi um, thank you very much for joining the energy insiders podcast
3: thanks very much Giles and hello to you and David really looking forward to a chat
1: Well it's been a momentous couple of weeks. I mean look obviously the change in government, um, the presence of many many more independents in the House of Representatives as well as the Senate I should add, and the passage in the lower house um, last week of the climate bill. Now this was seen as um, a landmark event. I think the target is probably still well short of what most people would agree with be conforming with the science but what was your reaction to that
3: look uh, i i think that we have seen a momentous change in our parliament to have 16 people now sitting on the crossbench Uh, we have definitely a strong third way uh, in our national conversation for so long really since since federation Um, We've had this this, uh, two-major party conversation happening and uh, what we've seen with the election of of so many independents and indeed uh, many more uh, representatives of the Greens party is uh, is more voices at the table that are bringing a community sentiment, particularly around uh, climate change, into the federal debate in a really positive way. I'm I'm, uh, delighted to be part of the 47th parliament and to have so many colleagues alongside me on the crossbench.
1: We've had a, um, a strong crossbench before, a smaller but influential, in the Gillard government, where the Gillard government was in minority power, and we saw a fantastic um, piece of legislation coming through the Clean Energy Package, Clean Energy Package. Pardon me. Many more independents this time round, but Labor is not in a minority position. How confident are you that you're going to be able to bring them to the table?
3: Look, I think uh, we saw really good evidence in the debate on, on the government's Climate Act bill. Uh, we saw crossbenchers coming to the energy minister, coming to speak to Mr. Bowen, and then being successful in the House in moving amendments and having them uh, having them. Uh, Uh, taken up. In my own case, I went to see Minister Bowen, uh, talked about rural and regional Australia. I had four amendments that I wished to put to him and uh, the government voted in favour of those amendments as did all the crossbench and I successfully amended the Climate Act. Um, I think that's an indicator that we have an environment where there's the possibility to have significant influence without holding the balance of power.
1: Yeah, that's fantastic. Did you ever get to meet um, Angus Taylor, his predecessor?
3: I met um, Minister Taylor many, many times. Um, I've made it my business uh, to be very clear with the people I represent that irrespective of who is in government, that I'll go in in good faith and work to improve public policy and represent uh, the constituents of Indi. So I went to Minister Taylor many times, particularly to speak about the work that's happening uh, here in, in my electorate on community energy and to put forward really strong policy positions around how we can uh, scale up community energy. So yeah, I met with him many times and I plan to continue to meet uh, with Minister Bowen uh, often throughout this 47th parliament (laughs) because um, the people of Indi, rural and regional Australians in this electorate, really want uh, sensible, practical, effective action on climate because we're right at the forefront of it here. This yeah. is an agricultural community this is a community that got smashed in the black summer bushfires uh, this is a community that's affected by uh, by a flood and uh, by a significant change in weather patterns so we want action on climate change and we want to actually share in the prosperity and real opportunity that comes with smart transition uh, to to new forms of energy Mm.
2: I'd like to come back to the um, uh, community side of things which I personally find very interesting but uh, just carrying on in the national perspective uh, one of the comments about the 43% is that it's just a target you know and and uh, and there are a lot of targets out there and it comes down to what actions we, we all take to achieve the target and I guess it was also very encouraging from a national perspective what we saw, which I'm sure Giles and I will talk about a little bit more about the putting the uh, emissions reduction into the national electricity objective. But as far as federal parliament goes, I think the next item on the agenda, according to what Chris Bowen said on the Insiders program on Sunday, is the safeguards mechanism target paper. Uh, do you have any indications about that or how are you thinking about that?
3: Well um, again we have to wait for that paper to be published but essentially um, I, I really support the intent of this. Um, right now uh, there's no industrial emitters in my electorate that come under the safeguard mechanism but uh, if if the cap's going to be reduced over time um, and that's something that I would support uh, that you know, some of the bigger emitters in my electorate may in fact now fall under that safeguard mechanism. So again, what I would want to see was how, how they can be supported in achieving that. And I think there's uh, enormous goodwill actually from uh, many of the larger um, manufacturers and emitters in my electorate to do, to do their very best on reducing emissions. So uh, some of this remains to be seen just, just where that baseline's going to go.
2: If we look forward from that to, I mean, a couple of other uh, things that are in the federal discussion are, are, are vehicle emission standards and also electrification of the household. Now, um, maybe I'm interested in electrification of vehicle, not and um, emission standards on 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 fossil fuel emissions from vehicles, petrol vehicles. What what do you think this Parliament can act, is likely to see in terms of any action on that front?
3: Well, um, David and Giles, you mentioned before, of course, uh, well known that the government's target, and and I'm happy that it's a floor, not a ceiling, it's 43%, and that's well under what what our scientists are telling us we we need to achieve. I went to the last election putting forward um, a call for a 60% emissions target, and in order to do that, we need to... To really address some of the gaps that are in the government's Powering Australia policy. So vehicle emission standard is one, there's basically nothing on agriculture, um, we need to deliver on those things and I've put forward some significant policies uh, particularly on agriculture and also on, uh, on the demand side um, of, of all of this which is around electrifying our homes and uh, I think we need to do some significant policy work in that space.
2: So let's just talk about those two areas very briefly before I head back to Giles. In terms of agriculture first of all, what do you think is the most useful thing the government could actually do?
3: Well I talked to a lot of farmers and um, leading up to the last election I had quite a, a large um, meeting with a diverse group of farmers uh, from Indi and what I heard from them is they have a, a, a strong incentive to uh, to get to zero net farming because their, their trading implications are so important. They know that uh, to export their produce around the world that they need to, to get to zero net emissions to have a carbon neutral farming. Um, but the mechanisms to do that are not clear to them. Uh, we know that there's real challenges when it comes to sequestering carbon, um, but there's real opportunities to do that. And uh, there's real opportunities for them to find uh, ways of, of utilising energy on, in their farming exercises um, to, to utilise Uh, solar and batteries, for example, but no clear plan on how to do that. So what they said to me is that what would be really useful to them would be if if there could be government assistance in the translation of of the science into practice, and and the most effective way of doing that in agriculture, and we've had a long tradition of doing this, is through the use of agricultural extension officers. And any time over the course of modern agriculture, when there's been significant change in um, scientific practices, these. Uh, uh, um, these officers have been on the ground assisting farmers, so they said to me, "This would be a really useful thing to do." The National Farmers Federation have really backed that idea in as well, so that um, you know, right now we have got um, uh, we've got drought hubs around Australia where there's uh, translation of science into practice. Uh, those drought hubs potentially could um, could be the places where these agricultural extension officers uh, for achieving. Uh, emissions reduction and and carbon farming uh, could be coming from so that that's one suggestion and I've put that to this new government as something for them to consider.
2: And on the households?
3: Well on the households I recently wrote an article actually which was uh, republished in Renew Economy and I wrote that with Saul Griffiths who's well known to uh, to all your listeners I'm sure and um, We really argued that to truly accelerate the energy transition we need to look at the demand side and put communities and households right at the centre of energy policy. And so we laid out a five part plan to get this done. Um, We we put forward that we we need uh, loans to help households electrify. We need to adopt phase-out dates for the sale of new fossil burning machines. Um, We need to accelerate the rollout of community batteries, uh, particularly starting with the edge of grid locations. Uh, We need to boost local ownership of renewables through underwriting community investments, funding community energy hubs. And we need to rewrite energy market rules so they don't favour big fossil fuel companies.
1: It's interesting that the, with, the, with the community power, um, um, the community energy, you, know, you spent a lot of time in the last parliament pushing forward various um, uh, legislative um, suggestions or, or, or pushing pushing through legislation for community energy. Before we get to that, um, what's your reaction to the decision by the energy ministers last week to put environment back into the national energy uh, objective? Because that seems to be uh, regarded by the industry as as, as quite fundamental. Because it's almost impossible to make a sensible decision without thinking about the environment.
3: Yes, isn't it so true? And in fact, when I I met with Minister Bowen, I put that to him precisely. He said to me, he indicated that that conversation was about to happen Uh, and indeed it did the following week so i'm really pleased to see that
1: yeah so it's back to the community power um, or the community energy so to remind us what you were actually proposing in the last parliament and where that's at now and what you think is possible in this current parliament
3: yeah so in the last parliament um, i put forward a detailed bill to set up a new sister in a, a sister agency to arena that would would really drive investment into the community energy space and mostly to establish local community energy hubs and deliver grant funding, technical support for communities who who want to develop their own community batteries, solar projects, microgrids and so on. Um, I think that uh, that that was called the Australian Local Agents Power Agency, the ALPA Bill. Um, it was co-designed with uh, a 15-member expert panel from around my electorate and around the nation, actually, and it went alongside um, a, a significant piece of policy called the Local Power Plan. Um, so I introduced that bill. It uh, it went off to the Energy and Environment Committee for an in, for an inquiry, which I was really pleased about. And that inquiry found that that our existing bodies, our you know our Arena and our CEFC, don't provide sufficient support for regional communities, and there's no scope to under the current setup to improve the way they work with the regions. So, um, I'm calling for a, a review of Arena to identify the best way that Arena can work uh, with regional communities uh, and with community grants uh, more broadly, because uh, this issue of technical support um, and uh, finding better ways for uh, communities, particularly regional communities, to benefit from large-scale renewables, uh, how regional communities can get into the mid-scale energy generation uh, area. These are all all opportunities, I think, and right now, ARENA's really not addressing those. So I've met again, um, part of my meeting with uh, Chris Bowen, was to put this to him and uh, he's committed at the very least to raising these issues with ARENA.
1: Mm. It's one of the great promises of sort of distributed energy and the sort of shift to renewables in particular sort of household things like sort of rooftop solar and batteries and possibly mm. even electric vehicles was the sort of this promise of um, the democratisation of energy. Um, yeah. But sometimes you wonder well yes that should be the go in principle but you do sometimes wonder whether it will actually how democratic that energy will be or whether it still gets bundled up by the big utilities and, and the consumers somehow still miss out even though they seem to own all the devices themselves.
3: Yeah, well I, I, think, I think we will miss out unless we're really um, intentional about making sure that we do democratise energy and we're at a point in our, in our history where we can do that and there's some clear policy levers that can be pulled to enable it. And that, that was exactly uh, what my bill was about. Um, I think even on the most, most practical level, you know, we have communities right now that are uh, situated on the edge of the grid uh, in my in my area, um, a, a small town called Coryong right up in the Upper Murray, um, in the Towong Shire, was absolutely um, cut off from power for several weeks during during the Black Summer bushfires. Found itself so vulnerable that you know the hospital had to be evacuated uh, because there was no power. The the essential services couldn't run. Um, the on a good day, when we're not in a, uh, in a bushfire situation, they have regular brownouts. The, the energy is so unreliable. Likewise, down the other end of my electorate, a small town called Euroa, similar problem. Um, the, the local IGA has, has two diesel generators in his parking lot. In order to keep the refrigerators running now now this is modern australia and this is victoria <laughs> you know we're, we're not talking really really remote places no we're not there has to be a
1: smarter solution than two diesel generators in the car park
3: doesn't there doesn't it so you know these are the kind of things that that uh community energy can provide some solutions to so for example uh this issue of energy security uh during catastrophe uh up in up in uh Corriong, there's work going on right now to put solar on um, public public buildings to create a microgrid and to to establish a community energy that would enable that little community to be islandable in an emergency. But but at the same time, the the potential for community batteries in these edge of grid communities means that we we maybe have the capacity to to solve that that brownout problem that, that we face on a regular basis.
2: So, uh, you know, I noticed that uh, uh, Fox Charge has a has a, a high-speed charger in your but basically it's very hard to get electric vehicle charging in your electric, yep. from what I found. Uh, Just one um,
1: interruption, David, make that Charge Fox.
2: Charge Fox, Fox charge. excuse me, excuse <laughs> me. <Yes. laughs> carrying too much around in the small brain um, <laughs> uh, uh, but I wanted to just ask I mean it interests me that you uh, represent a, a largely semi-rural electorate uh, and yet the attitude is so different uh, that you have to you know typical national party electorates uh, in other states I, I just wondered if you could just talk about that just just for a second what why, why it is that uh, you know that the, the um, people will vote for an independent in your rural electorate, but not for, but vote so strongly for a national party in electorates. You know, like in Western New South Wales and, and, and Queensland and the like.
3: Well, they, they had one to vote for to start with. Um, I, I think that the uh, I think that the electorate of Indi uh, is actually not so different to many other rural and regional places. To be honest, um, but given a choice. The people of Indi were able to choose an independent, firstly with Cathy McGowan in 2013, and then then with me in 2019, because we we were there, we put forward sensible policies based on what we heard people asking for. I think rural and regional Australians have been undersold for a long, long time when it comes to their um, desire to be engaged in national debate on a transition to renewable energy. I think it's really telling that uh, during that last parliamentary sitting when I put forward really sensible amendments to the Climate Act that positioned rural and regional Australia right at the centre of that, that made sure that rural and regional Australia would be uh, considered by the Climate Change Authority when it came to advice to the Minister that would make sure that rural and regional Australia truly saw benefits, um, economic employment benefits, uh, that there would be expertise on the Climate Change Authority from rural and regional Australia, that the National Party, it just beggars belief, the National Party voted against that. Now, if I was uh, a a person in, in those rural electorates represented by uh, a member of the national party and and I saw that they voted against an amendment that positioned me and my communities at the centre of climate action, then i tell you what, I'd be banging on my MP's door and demanding an explanation. So I think they're in serious trouble uh, if, a, if a sensible independent with good policies based on community concern challenged them at the next election.
2: So it's interesting because I think social licence and regional acceptance of the transition is an, a very big national issue because most of the variable renewable energy is going to be based in a few regional electorates. Uh, so that's 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 not something we're going to solve in this conversation. But I wanted to move on to another Topic of straight politics, just briefly, which is you'll have to indulge me, listeners. <laughs> uh, uh, which is that you know we, you've already referred to the group of independents in Parliament almost as if they are a, a party, and yet all the teals are so uh, strong on their own individual independence, and yet it seems to me that Parliament is about gathering the numbers and working as a group, and I'm I'm sure you you independents have had meetings and talks and things and i'm just wondering if you have anything to say about how you think this will develop over time
3: well firstly i want to pick you up on the comment that uh, i referred to us almost as a party i would be the last person to do that um i am fiercely independent and i think the reason that i have been uh, successfully re-elected to india and uh, and Colleagues such as Zali Stegel and Andrew Wilkie uh, being re-elected as independents is because we are exactly that—we're not a party—and um, many Australians have been sick and tired of party politics and sick and tired of the party being put before the people. So, um, absolutely, would would refute any suggestion that uh, that this expanded crossbench looks anything like a party. But what I would say uh, is that. We are united on some issues and and climate, of course, uh, there's no question that most of the crossbench have uh, more ambitious hopes and policy positions on climate action than than the government and indeed uh, far more ambitious than the opposition. So there'll be elements that that we are are united on uh, but we'll have different approaches. So for me, my focus is always on on putting a lens over any policy, actually whether it's climate or health or education, anything actually, putting that rural and regional lens on it and saying, what does this mean to a rural and regional electorate such as mine? Um, Is this sound Ethical policy is this good governance? Is is this a policy that will solve the problem that we have in front of us? Now that will look a bit different if you're, you know, if you're the member for Kuyong or the member for Wentworth, or indeed if you're a Western Australian Independent uh, in uh, in the seat of Curtin. Um, but the core principle of science-backed uh, climate policy is one that many of us agree on. And I think if you could look back to the 46th Parliament and how we worked then, you'll see that there was combined effort on those big issues of uh, action on climate. So Zali Stegall introduced her Climate Act, and uh, and uh, I think it was Rebecca Sharkey seconded um, that, that um, bill in the House, and then I spoke on it, and uh, as did Andrew Wilkie. I think... Um, Of course, uh, Adam Bant did as well, and probably Bob Catter had something to say about it as well. When it came to um, relentlessly fighting for a Federal Integrity Commission, I took the lead on it. Um, Sally Stegall seconded my bill in the House. Uh, Each member of the crossbench spoke strongly in support of it. When it came to the the very dying days of the 46th Parliament back in uh, November, 21 when I called for a suspension in the house and um, we had a vote on debating my bill we saw all of the crossbench and indeed the opposition supporting me on that and indeed uh, one member of the coalition the member for bass crossing the floor to support that so you know we we work collaboratively when it makes sense to do so uh, but but there's plenty of policies that we'd, we'd have quite different views on i think
2: I'll hand back to Giles, and we should probably go back to community energy because I'm interested in microgrids, but I would just uh, close uh, with the observation that it's great that the independents have all these positions, and don't get me wrong, I support many of them, but you have to wait for a majority uh, party to actually lead and actually put the policies, like whether it's an integrity commission or, or the climate change legislation... You have to have a government, you know. You have to form government, and if you're constantly going to be only representing yourself and your electorate, you're never actually going to be a government. But that, I, 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 there's no need to respond to that. That's just my own opinion expressed. Well, I, on this I, I po- feel
3: like I should respond though, because I, I think um, I think that's a rather um, reductionist view of of representation and and parliamentary influence. You know what, what we what we see transpire in terms of, of look. There's no question a government a government comes in and sets their agenda, um, but that agenda is based usually on uh, a whole lot of issues that have have emerged uh, through the through the preceding period of time and over an election campaign. What, a, what an independent does uh, is bring forward issues that, that that particular electorate they're representing hold up as most important and significant. And there'll be alignment um, often with what, uh, what the government's trying to do. Uh, and there's real opportunity to work with government, either directly uh, with the minister or through parliamentary committees, uh, through debate on the floor and uh, through, through various other parliamentary tools to, to influence what's going on. And, and I would argue, um, when it comes to those two huge issues that we, we uh, battled out in the 46th Parliament, climate and integrity, that it was the work of the crossbench um, that now sees us in a position in the 47th Parliament where a climate act has just gone through the House of Representatives And indeed, we'll soon see an integrity bill coming to the House of Representatives as well. So I think influence goes beyond having the numbers on the floor.
1: Good stuff. Um, I've got some questions about community energy, but I do just want to pursue just um, the border, the the bigger picture. First, I mean, you talked about the the, the desire to have a much higher emissions target by 2030. The science says probably between 60 and 70 percent. You're talking about 60 percent. I think the Greens would want 75 percent. In reality, what chance do you think there is of actually sort of making that happen in this session of Parliament? Um, Labor has said it doesn't want to move, but it may find itself forced to.
3: Well, I think um, we have to see what what the government puts forward as uh, as projects to make this happen. And um, you know, as I mentioned before, we, we haven't seen clear policy yet uh, from the federal government when it comes to vehicle emission standards. As I said, we haven't seen anything on uh, on agriculture. Um, I think that there's there's real opportunity for them to do better on this. Uh, we haven't seen strong policy on household electrification. Um, we've seen nothing on accelerating renewables into community and public facilities. And in and, and, and my particular area of really strong interest, there's no clear incentivisation of community-owned um, generation. So there's lots of opportunities there for the government to develop policies that would uh, very sensibly exceed the 43% target.
1: Just very briefly, we have a question about um, community energy in Yekandanda. Um, just, the Greens are opposing or want to oppose any new coal and gas projects. Um, do, you have a, do you have a view on that one or, or are you waiting to see?
3: Well, here in, uh, in Indi, we don't have any gas or coal generation. So what people talk to me about is taking the opportunities provided by renewables. Um, they talk to me about the issues they face with energy insecurity. They talk about the instability on the power in the power grid that I've mentioned before. Um, and they really want to see us profit and benefit from a transition to renewables. So I want to see measures that make renewable power more affordable, more reliable for my community. And coal and gas projects simply don't achieve that.
1: You, you mentioned Koryong and Euroa as having issues in the recent sort of weather events but uh, one mm. community that by their own choice um, quite a while ago set out to become 100% renewables and that's Yakandanda in your electorate so give us an update of where they're at at the moment.
3: Oh well Danda, extraordinary community that uh, set themselves their own goal to be totally renewable by 2022. Now they're not quite there but by golly they're close and this is a community that not only set about to uh, to educate themselves um, around what it means to transition to renewable energy sources. They set about uh, uh, doing the business of it by um, having uh, purchase plans for putting solar on on rooftops, in household rooftops. Uh, They set about uh, establishing a body that could fund uh, putting solar on, on um, public buildings such as the Yakandanda Hospital, such as uh, the big jail, um, a jail, former jail building over in Beechworth. They've put together a microgrid project and they've fundraised to set up uh, their very first community battery. So they're a little community that, uh, that punches way above its weight. They've also established a community energy retailer, Indigo Power and they're working collaboratively on a major uh, research and feasibility project called Project Edge which is looking at uh, energy sharing across communities more broadly. They're working with uh, Koryong, that little town up in in uh, the Upper Murray and uh, they're doing extraordinary work. If, if anyone who's listening is not familiar with uh, Totally re- Renewable Yak and Dander or Try, just Google it and jump on the website and have a look at this amazing community.
1: And I'm just wondering about the issue with social licence because that's coming up as well, particularly in rural areas where sort of a network's been planned. I, don't, I can't actually think off the top of my head if there's a transmission network sort of coming to a, to a region near you. Um, how do we manage such issues when there are sort of big solar projects or big wind projects or, um, or the transmissions um, infrastructure?
3: Yeah, look, it's a really important question because, again, if you're a rural and regional Australian, the, it's, uh, it's highly likely that there will be some kind of uh, renewable energy enterprise happening either in your backyard or close to it. Uh, so we need to be sure that rural communities are brought along with this transition and uh, a social licence to operate whether you're about to establish or wishing to establish a major wind farm or a major solar farm. There needs to be, I think, a considerable effort and more effort than what we have now to make sure that there truly is a benefit to that regional community. And, and that can mean um, uh, jobs, it can mean uh, new training opportunities through through our local TAFE colleges to ensure that there's an ongoing skills development in that regional community. It can mean uh, providing the opportunity to to literally share in the profits of uh, of that are being generated through through that enterprise. And you know, I think we could look to places like Germany, where 30% of all renewable energy projects are, are owned by farmers. Um, I'd like to see similar situations here in Australia whereby the profits truly do flow into regional communities and we see uh, the regions develop sustainably but with the, the infrastructure and the, uh, and the resources that we've longed for for so long. So, something like uh, the, the Rewiring the Nation Fund, for example, you know, this is a, a huge policy in the government's package. Uh, You know, they are aiming to get 37 million tonnes or tonnes of the 88 million um, by 2030. And it's a $20 billion fund that uh, I'd like to see um, some of that uh, fund being used on on things that can truly benefit the people most affected. Uh, Likewise, I'd like to see that fund uh, utilised, some of it carved off to assist with household electrification. Uh, and some of it carved off so that we really can accelerate these um, renewables on community facilities and, and incentivise some of this community-owned generation so that profits, dollars actually do flow back into, into households uh, and it's not just going offshore.
2: Is it your understanding that fund will actually be on the government's balance sheet, like expected to earn a return or, you know, off the balance sheet and expected to earn a return? There seems to be uh, some uncertainty in the people I talk to about the exact structure of it. And it takes a long time to spend twenty billion dollars, and I wonder if they'll actually even get any of it spent in the life, in the next three years.
3: <laughs> Look, it's it's a great question, and I don't know the answer to that either. So again, there's many elements now of the government's climate policy that that uh, will will need to be detailed more comprehensively and uh, that those positions those details I believe are forthcoming so I think that's a watch this space but but certainly my point is uh, that that is a phenomenal amount of money and I think I, I would like to see that fund uh, utilized a little more broadly than what the government is currently saying it's a, it's remit is
2: and, and Giles was asking about transmission I too can't remember when he whether any of the um uh, transmission upgrades are going to go through uh, your electorate but uh, one of the big issues about social license that I hear about is that landowners impacted by transmission don't feel that they get as good a negotiating position as say wind farm uh, farms locations where it's kind of more independent I also think that uh, most of these easement issues are more state government like and I just wondered how you as a local federal member, you can go about coordinating with the state government, or how you see how well that's working in your region.
3: Look, um, we're not directly affected, uh, like say, for example, the Mallee is right now, um, and there's also significant impact uh, in the in the Snowy Mountains area. and And I spoke to the minister uh, the other day about this exact issue. There seems to be, I mean, I, I got a, a very strong uh, sense from the Minister that he is very mindful um, around the importance of local communities truly having some meaningful say in this. But likewise, um, it's clear that uh, overhead power lines uh, are are much more uh, affordable than underground power lines, for example, that there is going to be some element whereby there will be um, power lines going through areas of rural and regional Australia that those people living in those areas um, won't be completely happy about. So there needs to be meaningful consultation and, and uh, that and I mean that, meaningful consultation whereby those communities actually get some some uh, true benefit from the impost of what's important uh, for the national good. I think regional communities absolutely understand um, the importance of transitioning to renewables. They absolutely understand that we need the poles and wires to distribute that renewable energy from a much more diverse um, uh, footprint than than the old uh, more centralised coal-fired power stations. So you know, people understand this. Uh, but there needs to be benefit that flows into those communities if in fact they are shouldering some of the uh, negative aspects of that infrastructure going through. And the best people to tell you what that is are those communities that are directly affected.
1: Well, Helen Haynes, look, thank you very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. I think we've probably run out of time um, now. And look, fascinating to hear your perspective, um, fantastic initiatives on community power. and. Um, May we hope and expect that um, we'll have even more independence into Parliament in the, in, yes. in in the next session, because it's a, it's such a welcome uh, it's such a welcome relief.
3: Well, we all very much enjoyed it, thank you. Thanks so much, Charles and David, and uh, really enjoyed having a chat to you too. and and yes, uh, let's let's watch watch the rise of the independent movement across australia with uh, with uh, great delight, I think. Thank you so much.
1: And that was Helen Haynes, the M- independent MP. For Indi. Um, David, um, interesting stuff. Um, it certainly does change the nature of politics. I think having 16 on the crossbench, he points out. It's um, more than I was thinking at the time. But um, if you include some of the old stages like Bob Catter and um, Andrew Wilkie, of course, um, plus um, a, a, a bigger Greens bench and a lot of independence.
2: Yes, uh, indeed. And I think the debate about the the value of independence will go on. There's no doubt that uh, it's great to have uh, electorates being represented with people who put their electorate first, second and third. That's wonderful. Uh, I also think myself that there is a role for parties and agendas and someone has to actually... uh, get the votes to get the actual things through. Now, let's talk, uh, Giles.
1: Yeah, I'm just going to take you I mean, I, I look, I, mean, I don't think we... we have, how many people we've got in, the, in Parliament, there's over 150, 151 or something like that. I don't think we're going to have 150 independents, so there will be parties. But I actually quite enjoy seeing as many independents as we can, um, mainly because the quality of independents that we've seen so far have actually been really good, really strong, and I quite like that dynamic and, and, and what it presents. But um, I, anyway, I agree with that, a-
2: Giles, but let's get back to Energy Insiders. um, uh, (laughs) this week uh, nevertheless we're on politics and what comes from the politics so we've had the 43% uh, target and as uh, Ms Haynes said uh, you know there was nothing really in the way of policy for agriculture in there Uh, there's nothing yet in the way of policy for vehicles which are about the second or third biggest sort of emissions Uh, but we are going to get some policy on the big emitters uh, on the safeguard scheme now there's a lot of things to be thought about in regard to that uh, in particular, I think the, the um, uh, coming events, the the sort of shadows that are casting themselves, suggest that uh, the Labor Party is debating uh, look uh, how to how to get new gas projects in. That you know, in theory, they shouldn't get in at all. Uh, in some ways, but guess what? West Australia is what delivered Labor the election, and West Australia wants to do some new gas projects. Uh, I, I'm prepared to bet you two bob in the old currency, Giles, that we uh, find a way that Labor finds a way to get them in.
1: Yes, it's going to be interesting. That um, safeguards discussion paper is coming out um, sometime this week. I don't think we know yet which day. Um, I don't think it's going to be Friday because I think there's something else happening on Friday uh, with the push for um, a fuel emissions um, uh, standard. But um, it's going to be interesting. David, do you actually think that this is going to offer other means to the safeguard mechanism to sort of finesse Either things like coal closures or um, basically sort of actually sort of getting some sort of biting targets for for the big industrial um, users um, to actually reduce their emissions? Again,
2: uh, reading, what, listening to what Chris Bowen was saying, I think he's going to individually tailor it. There obviously have to be an overall target. The federal parliament doesn't work on... um, you know, um, uh, facilities for individual emissions. Uh, it's not like you can just sort of have the federal government decide it, it doesn't want the Dell Del coal Station or anything, uh, uh, but it's going to have an overall target. But they will hope that there are individual tailored plans for each uh, facility. And I guess the underlying it will be a hope that, you know, for instance, uh, aluminium smelters can go renewable and do more than their share, uh, and this will make wriggle room for everyone else, that's what I'm guessing. My uh, long-standing suggestion uh, has been that um, you know, the easiest emissions to achieve are in the electricity sector, which doesn't have any new policy going forward at a federal level, uh, and so therefore it would be uh, a good idea to increase the uh, LRET target and, and allow that to be satisfied by the big emissions you know, as, a, as an offset, if you like, or they could buy those and that way we they, they could get their, their credits and we could get the uh, reductions going on in electricity, which is the underlying uh, foundation. Now, Giles, just while I've got the uh, mic here, uh, one of the things that interested me was how strongly supportive Mick DeBrenny was, the minister in Queensland, uh, for, for the um, forum and getting the um, uh, other big news, the real news of getting emissions reduction into the national electricity objective and because, of course, Queensland is the state with the most to do in terms of getting uh, rid of coal generation and how they're going to do it. Uh, the, the heads up I've had is that you know, if we're lucky, we'll see at the end of uh, next month or sometime in next month, we're going to see the major statement that Queensland's been promising us for over 12 months now. Uh, and I, I guess in, in many ways that holds the key uh, to what's going to happen because New South Wales's path is set, Victoria's path is set, South Australia's path is set, Tasmania's path is set. It's Queensland that we look to.
1: It's um, very interesting too. Yes, um, just while we're on this, sort of the ministers' meeting from last week, the decisions made about the um, capacity mechanism, the decision to effectively sideline ESB, uh, resting control um, back in, putting it back into the ministerial um, departments and things like that. Clearly, the ministers weren't happening, were happy with what the ESB had produced over the last couple of years, and the fact that even after the disappearance of Angus Taylor, they kind of still sort of dug their heels in, didn't really budge much at all. Um, Many people in the clean energy industry seem to be quite happy with that.
2: Well, you know, there was even a lack of support, as you pointed out, uh, from most of the major coal generators. I mean, we're having all of the big gen tailors are having to think very hard about what they're doing and why they're doing it going forward. Um, As we heard from Mark Collette right at the beginning of the year, everyone has taken the ISP on board. You know, I'd like to see a minister for getting the ISP implemented. That's what I'd like to see. Uh, and, right. and 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 or, and someone an executive, but you know there are problems with having uh, the states just decide all this for themselves and having bureaucrats decide it without clear policy. You know we we, we um, uh, and we, look, I like the way that New South Wales is doing it in in a lot of ways, which is just inviting tenders for new. Uh, firm in power, uh, a certain amount, it might be the right amount, it might be the wrong amount, uh, just in it on the way, and if all the other states did that, uh, uh, then the coal generation would go away all by itself. We don't want the coal generation, we don't want everyone to do an araring and close instantly, uh, that is bad too. We have to bear the cost of supporting the existing generation while we build the new one. So the most important task is to build the new one as fast as possible. We don't have enough policy for that, either in the variable side or the firming side. So we need policies there first up, either from the states or from federal government, preferably federal. And then secondly, uh, we need to do what we have to do to keep the coal generation around just long enough uh, for the new stuff to be built and not one day longer and then piss it off.
1: <laughs> well said, I couldn't say anything better than that. Um, it's going to be interesting. Uh, we're just into results season, so we had Energy Australia last week, which was um, just basically sort of confirmed the disaster that was Ulaan and Matt Piper, particularly in the context of high wholesale prices. Um, Ulaan had breakdowns, Matt Piper couldn't get enough coal, so they basically had to go on market, and that basically blew their profit up. Uh, and they also had sort of like a notional loss on the value of sort of contracts as well, which sort of made things look much worse. We're seeing Origin on Thursday, I think it is. I think we're seeing AGL on Friday. Um, fascinating to see what they come up with. We won't predict it, anything. But David, um, one of your big bugbears, one of my big bugbears, the lack of fuel emission standards, is gonna be on the agenda of a, an energy um, electric vehicle summit in Canberra on Friday, and this one has been sort of organised by uh, Mike Cannon-Brooks and his new foundation, backing of Saul Griffith. He's got a inc- stellar line of energy ministers. I mean, they just met in Canberra a week ago, and they're all going to be back here, or at least some of them are going to be back there physically, others in um, sort of virtual mode um, to speak about fuel emission standards. But um, it is long past time that we had them.
2: It absolutely is, and uh, nice, aggressive ones we want too. And it was great to see the financial reviews even feeling the pressure in their editorials. They were complaining that Mike Ken and Brooks has been criticising their editorials. Well, guess what? Uh, Mike Ken and Brooks isn't the only one. I mean, I, you know, It's not for me to really run the financial review down a newspaper I've read for many, many years, but I feel that for a decade they've been two years or three years behind the pace of what's really needed in climate change, and it's uh, time for them to catch up. And even now, they're still saying that the road to decarbonisation runs through the gas fields, and I really wonder whether they've actually done the analysis to actually work that out, but anyhow...
1: Well, goodness knows. Um, we'll find out soon enough. Um, David, um, that's a nice long um, podcast for this week. Um, it was great having Helen Haynes from Indi um, on the podcast. Um, thank you for your contribution. It should be fascinating this week to see what we um, see from the safeguard mechanism plus more results. Um, Origin and AGL. I'll point out as well that GenX is under a um, share suspension. Um, So we might see some news about the Scott Farquhar and Kim Jackson bid for that company, whether it gets increased or withdrawn. Um, It should be interesting to see. And uh, we'll be back again. And of course, with the EV Summit. And our sponsors, Giles. Yes, I was about to say. Oh, sorry. I like to get a word in for them too. That's
2: my own personal word.
1: Oh, there you go. Well, thank you very much, David. Uh, yes, pardon and Evergen who have been with us um, a long time and we thank them for their ongoing support. It's uh, absolutely fantastic. So, um, And thanks, everyone, to the listeners out there. Um, I think, um, did I mention that last week? I think almost 70,000 downloads in the last month, which is um, pretty exciting for a niche um, but incredibly important um, weekly podcast. We'll be back again this time next week. Bye for now.
0: Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant. Generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole, Evergen software is powering the energy system of the future.